Well, we are going to continue our Advent series today, which we are calling Letters to Those Who Are, uh, who are Waiting, Letters to Those Who Wait, as we look at the texts appointed to each Sunday in Advent um, from the epistles. So we are going to be in Romans today. But I heard somebody recently say, I was a way better parent before I had kids. I was a way better parent before I had kids. And to be honest with you, that perfectly sums up my feelings. Any other parents in the room willing to admit something similar? I've often said that there is perhaps nothing that will make you more gracious with your parents or whoever raised you than having kids of your own or accepting the responsibility to raise kids in some capacity. At least that's how it's been for me. It was like a light bulb was illuminated. Wow, this is not as easy as I thought it was. You know, I could easily identify the problem and prescribe a perfect remedy for mistakes I saw parents making from a distance when I was a young adult. And then I had kids and have since been continually confronted with the reality that I have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, we're trying, but it is hard. And I'm confident mistakes are being made. And I'm also confident that our daughters, when they age, they're going to be completely willing and completely able to identify those mistakes. I was a way better parent before I had kids. And I think that's a human tendency that presents itself in innumerable ways, and it's one that will always make peace in our relationships quite difficult. And it's not just about parenting. I think it happens in nearly every aspect of life where we observe somebody in a particular situation and we think, well, I would never do that if I was faced with those circumstances. I can't believe you are doing A, B, and C. I would do X, Y, and Z in that situation. It is our tendency, instead of being empathetic, instead of bearing with one another, our tendency to choose judgment instead. Which brings us to our text from Romans 15 today. Last week we were in Romans 13. Today we jump ahead a couple of chapters. Romans 15, where we, we're going to see Paul say this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. To bear with the failings of the weak. Now, to fully grasp what Paul is suggesting here, we, we actually have to back up to the previous chapter where his argument begins, where he is beginning to address a specific issue that had arisen in the church regarding Christians and their interaction with food, which is not an altogether uncommon concern in the early church. How do followers of Jesus interact with something like Food. Questions as simple as this. Should Gentile Christians adhere to kosher food laws? Now, if you remember that text from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, you can probably guess where Paul lands on an issue like that. Just like his position on something like circumcision, Paul did not think Gentiles should be required to abide by kosher food laws. That's just one example of how in the early church, Christians were trying to figure out how do we interact with, engage with something as simple as food. 
But there was another food issue that was stirring up some controversy. That's what Paul addresses here. Apparently, much of the meat that would have been available for purchase and consumption in this particular context was meat from animals that had been sacrificed in pagan rituals. And so this weak group that Paul repeatedly refers to throughout the next couple of chapters, this weak group were those who felt uneasy about consuming that meat because of what it had been used for in the past. Like, does consuming this meat compromise my faith in Jesus Christ because it had been used as a sacrifice in a pagan ritual? And Paul is going to say, no, it doesn't compromise your faith in Jesus because the, the pagan gods to whom this was sacrificed, they're, they're not real. It, this is just meat. In and of itself, it is neither clean or unclean. But the issue was still important And for Paul, the bigger issue is not the meat itself and whether it should be consumed or not. The bigger issue for Paul is what this controversy surrounding meat was doing to the church's relationships with one another. So at the beginning of Romans 14, he begins addressing this. says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So do not quarrel over opinions about these peripheral issues. And then we get down to today's text In Romans 15, beginning in verse 1, where we find a reiteration of some of these themes, Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We who are strong. I love that. Leave it to Paul to bring attention to his own strength. But I really don't think he's pointing to his own strength in order to puff himself up. Rather, he is calling himself and any others who would consider themselves to be strong in regard to this issue, he is calling them to a greater level of responsibility to bear with the weakness of another. He says, do not pass judgment in these matters of conscience. Now, again, I think it's important to note that this is a specific issue involving food. Um, And I don't think we need to stretch Paul's argument beyond where it would be appropriate. I I think we would be hard-pressed to make an intelligible argument that Paul takes sort of a laissez-faire approach to any and all ethical issues, saying, well, you know, you do you. Um, Let's just all get along. We can have our own opinions on all of these issues. It's not a... that, That is not Paul. Because when it comes to the believing community... Paul does not at all shy away from calling out his brothers and sisters in the believing community when there are legitimate sin issues. In other letters in our New Testament, with issues of sin that are critical, we see Paul act quite decisively and swiftly. I think of one simple example from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where 
Paul spends time lamenting the fact that there is rampant immorality in the church in Corinth. And not just immorality, but he says immorality that wouldn't even be tolerated among pagans. And he then begins to address a specific issue that was going on in the church in Corinth, where an individual was sexually involved with his father's wife. And Paul says, no, that is a critical issue. That guy needs to be removed from among you. But he doesn't just leave it there. It actually gets more intense if you look at verse 5. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, Paul apparently does not take a laissez-faire approach to any and all ethical issues. Within the believing community, he is more than willing to call out issues of sin um, and hopefully in that difficult conversation to draw an individual back to the Lord. But I think it's possible, as as we think about this tension, it is possible for our ideal of quote unquote peace or our desire for an absence of conflict in the moment, it is possible that that would actually in the end cause a lot of harm in the community. Because apparently there are critical issues of sin where good conflict in the community is not only called for but also healthy for the individuals involved and for the community. This is perhaps one way in which our understanding of peace and harmony in the community needs to be stretched a little bit. If we are committed to living life in community together, it is not realistic, it is not healthy to think that it will always be conflict-free. Our understanding of harmonious peaceful relationships cannot be reduced to conflict-free, easygoing, a a sort of don't-ever-rock-the-boat approach to life with one another. Without healthy conflict, without moments of disagreement during which we can learn together how to mutually work through conflict in love, Without some of that tension, any notion of peace in our relationships is always going to be surface level at best. It is only going to be as deep as our agreement on that particular issue. And as followers of Jesus, we are interested in a much more robust sort of peaceful and harmonious living. What we desperately need, and maybe I should just speak for myself, I desperately need relationships with one another where I have invited others into a role of accountability, where they know they have permission, and I actually want them to call me on my nonsense and my sin, and there's a lot of nonsense. You can just ask my wife, but I cannot be healthy without that. And and I would suggest that neither can you. Those types of relationships are really difficult. They're really uncomfortable, but we need them. And I actually think those types of relationship where tension and disagreement is not off the table, I think that is good for our long-term 
deep-seated peace and harmony. Peace and harmony in our relationships cannot be equated with constantly walking on eggshells so that we never have to have difficult but honest conversations. You know, personally, I'm so thankful for those in my life who are willing to have difficult conversations with me. So our notions of harmony within the body of Christ, it, that cannot mean a lack of discomfort, and I would suggest it cannot mean constant and uninterrupted agreement on every issue. But again, the the text we're looking at in Romans 15, this is a particular issue involving meat sacrificed to idols. And we might even expand it to include maybe other ceremonial Jewish issues that were pressing issues of the day, something like circumcision or the observance of various special religious days. But according to Paul, ultimately those issues were not deal breakers. Those were not non-negotiables in the Christian church, but apparently those peripheral issues to Paul were still incredibly important that he takes a lot of time to address it here in Romans, and they're so important because of their propensity to cause division within the body. So for Paul, when it comes to these issues of conscience, issues that aren't sinful but a matter of personal preference, in those situations he argues that we must face our obligation to be flexible, to be empathetic, to be understanding and willing to put our desires or our thoughts on the back burner. He says we follow the example of our Lord. We continue reading in verse 2, and I understand that we've only made it through one verse, but Let's get after it. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. If Jesus, our Lord, didn't always act to please himself. Maybe that shouldn't be my default position either. Maybe I should be willing to concede from time to time and be flexible in the context of Christian community, putting my desires and my thoughts on the back burners when the issue is not critical. Continue reading in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement, we're really speeding up now, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Living in such harmony with one another living in harmony. This is what we have been called to do, to live in harmony, to live at peace with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Again, not always perfect agreement, but harmony. So harmony can exist even in the midst of disagreement. We might think of this in terms of harmonies in music, that process of joining together distinct 
unique pitches and notes uh, that are also complementary to one another that creates something entirely new and beautiful. It, there's probably a better and more technically precise way to talk about harmonies in music, but that's not my field of expertise. And I think you probably get the picture, right? Okay. So harmonies in music. Um, earlier this week, I took our daughter to a rehearsal for a Christmas production that she's a part of tonight. And in this uh, production, she's singing as a part of an ensemble, and a part uh, of the song she's singing, she's tasked with singing the harmony rather than the melody of the song for the first time, um, which, as somebody who could never sing harmonies very well, I'm, I'm just amazed at her ability to do that. I always wanted to because I love a good harmony. I mean, what's better than those perfectly smooth harmonies of an 80s power pop sensation like the Cars? It's just so good. I could never do that. And especially live, right? It, it's great to hear that when something's done in the studio, but it's an altogether different experience to hear those harmonies live. And it's a very different experience than a piece of music that is nothing but dissonance. I mean, dissonance can be a, a meaningful part of a song, but if that's all it is, it would be really hard to listen to. It's grating. It's, it's not peaceful. It sort of leaves you on edge. But with harmonies, you're taking these distinct and unique notes and pitches, putting them together to create something beautiful. And I think that can be a helpful image for the type of har harmony and peace that is to be at work within the body of Christ. Not sameness, unique, distinct, but coming together to create something beautiful. So this is where I, I want to lead us today. How do we pursue that type of peace and harmony in our relationships with one another? Again, understanding that it's not perfect and uninterrupted agreement on every issue, but how do we move towards genuine, deep-seated peace and harmony? First, I would say that it requires that we take an inventory of our own health. What deep soul work am I in need of? A pastor I went to school with recently said that one of the biggest blessings you can give your pastor is to do the soul work necessary to be at peace with others in the church. And I think that's true, but I would probably add to that one of the biggest blessings you can give to the community, to your brothers and sisters sitting around you now, and one of the biggest blessings you can give to yourself is to do the soul work necessary to be at peace, genuine, deep-seated peace with others in the community. If I have wounds that I haven't worked to find healing for, maybe if I have deep-seated anger about something or unmitigated fear, if I'm not healthy in here, that is always going to come out in my relationships. And one, I think, helpful exercise for me has been to sort of take an inventory of my conversations. Maybe you would even think of conversations in the past couple of weeks or couple of months that you've had. If I notice that the bulk of my conversations with other people are spent talking about how misguided somebody else is or how much better I am and how I would have responded, of course, we never 
do it that explicitly, but I would have never responded like they responded in that situation. If I find that the bulk of my conversations with others are of that nature, I probably need to do some serious soul work. If I find that wherever I go, it seems like relational havoc is being wreaked, it, it, discontent is being sowed rather than peace. May, maybe the problem isn't out there. May, maybe it's in here. So are we willing to do the soul work needed to become healthy enough personally that we become those who long to bring people together and to restore harmony in relationships rather than being satisfied or validated in using our words to create discord. So I think a personal inventory needs to be taken. Where, where am I? Where is my soul in terms of health? And then secondly, I think one of the keys, and, and I think we find it in this text in Romans 15, one of the keys to pursuing genuine, deep-seated peace and harmony in Christian community is to assess whether the foundation of our lives truly is our loyalty to King Jesus above all else. And I get that that sounds like an incredibly trite, maybe a Sunday school answer, but I think it's true. If my peace and my hope are genuinely found in the Lord, I can then, and maybe only then, begin to let go of my obsession with proving myself or getting my way or making sure that I'm heard or making sure that I am the center of everybody's attention. We then, and maybe only then, can begin to acknowledge differences that we have on peripheral issues from a posture of grace rather than judgment. Not pretending that those differences don't exist, but also not succumbing to the misguided assumption that our differences define us. C.S. Lewis said that when it's all said and truly said about the division of Christendom, there remains by God's mercy an enormous common ground. And I, I believe that to be true. Um, I believe that to be true when we think about the global church and all of its various shapes, forms, and sizes. It's why ecumenism is a cause that is close to my heart. Y yes, we have differences, but there is enormous common ground, and that common ground is what unites us. So I think it's true on that global church-wide scale, but I think the same is true on a much smaller scale when it comes to our relationships within the local church context, because undoubtedly and inevitably, we too will have differences. We always will. Our goal is not to have perfect agreement on every issue, but rather to recognize that there is enormous common ground, and that common ground is primarily found in our loyalty to Jesus Christ as King. 
As Paul says in verses 5 and 6, we live in harmony with one another that we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the process of those unique and distinct notes and pitches coming together in a complementary way to create something beautiful. And that thing that is beautiful is our voices coming together to glorify the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Let me read these last few verses, and then we're going to wrap this up. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. The good news of Jesus Christ is proclaiming God's righteous rule to all people, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The good news of Jesus Christ, God's righteous rule, is the banner under which we as his people are united. A banner that makes room for our uniqueness and our differences, but calls us in the midst of that uniqueness to live together in harmony, to lift our voices together and glorify our God. Thanks be to God. Would you stand? We're going to celebrate together around this table. And there is perhaps no uh, activity that unites us more thoroughly than this meal, the leveling of the playing field, an acknowledgement by each of us that we are in desperate need of the gift that we receive in the body and blood of Jesus. We come to this table with open hands, bringing nothing but our trust in Jesus. We invite you to the table. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Let me say a prayer by way of invitation. And Steve, would you help me serve today? Say a prayer by way of invitation. Lord Jesus, even as we think about our brothers and sisters in this room that we are surrounded with, that we have been praying together today and singing with today, we acknowledge that we have brought into this place a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different experiences. We acknowledge those differences, but we also set those aside in this moment to unite our hearts and our voices in expressing our loyalty to you, glorifying you as our God and Father. And so we pray, blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, 
which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?